episode 481, Finding Mastery and Learning from Extraordinary People, Michael Gervais. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast, tracking down the finest alpha minds on the planet for you. I'm Adam Lewis Walker, host of the number one men's development podcast that is now a best-selling book, Awaken Your Alpha, Tales and Tactics to Thrive. And it is my mission to share you the real stories, the useful stuff, the juicy stuff, and the reality of what it takes to thrive. Do the little guy a favor, subscribe and review. It'll help get him off my back. If you've ever thought or dreamed or wondered what it would be like to do a TEDx talk, you can get this completely free 45 minute training masterclass on how to land your TEDx talk in 90 days or less without wasting your time on the wrong opportunities. That training is brand new for 2021. You can jump over there, talkaccelerator.com forward slash masterclass. That's talkaccelerator.com. It really digs into the three key secrets to landing your own TEDx talk. Amplify your message and amplify your mission. All links mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes at ayalpha.com. Get to the podcast. Okay, enjoy the show. Hey, just a quick update. Last month, Michael was part of the USA surfing team in the Tokyo Olympics and Carissa Moore brought home the gold medal. Congratulations to Michael and the team at USA Surfing. This week is all about high performance. It always is, but we're really digging in deep to high performance today. We've got Mike Gervais on the line. He's a high performance psychologist working in the trenches of high stakes environments with some of the best in the world, training the mindset, skills and practices essential to pursuing and revealing one's potential. His clients include world record holders, Olympians, internationally acclaimed artists and musicians, MVPs from every major sport and Fortune 100 CEOs. Excited to jump in this week. There's a lot more we can say about him, but I want to get stuck in. Michael, are you ready to awaken your alpha today? Oh, I love, I love the tone. I love the fire you're coming with. Thank you for including me, Adam, in your mission and your community. No worries. So, I mean, that your bio could have gone on and it would have been interesting and entertaining for like half the show. So is there anything you'd like to add or highlight or pick out? What are you all about at the moment? Oh, that's it's brilliant. I, you know, most people are really interested in the work I did with the Red Bull Stratos program, which was where Felix Baumgartner jumped from nearly 130,000 feet and wow. was the first person to travel the speed of sound. So that project is pretty intense. And then, but that this, the eventual migration has led to what's happening in big business and what are the cascade effects to smaller businesses. And so I've been fortunate enough to work across, you know, big companies like Microsoft and from their CEO all the way through to, you know, management and some of the frames of reference and the best practices that they're employing to help their people be their very best. And then the, the third thing that usually comes up is around the Seattle Seahawks and the near decade that I spent with them. Awesome. And you, you have a course, you work with Pete Carroll ongoing, who's, is he still the head coach? Cause obviously my, my NFL is not up to date as the, the average American probably. Yeah. Coach Carroll's the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And um, we built a course and about four years, three years ago now. Yeah. And that course is basically pulling back the curtain on how we condition and train the minds of people that want to be their very best. And yeah. uh, some might call that alpha competitors. Definitely. I um, mean, and when you mentioned about the, the Red, Red Bull Stratosphere jump um, and just that's, that video is iconic. I, I, don't, I don't even know the stats, how many times it's been viewed. As soon as you said it, I just have that, you know, that picture, that image of him, you know, basically jumping out in space. It's just, I mean, that's something, it was something else. It was one, you know, when you think about the, 
the men and women who are helping be part of launching a man, the first man to the moon. I think that that's what it felt like to us is that we were part of something very, very special at the time. Growing up, I never had, you know, that moment where everyone stops and watched someone land on the moon for the first time. So that was like, that was definitely a, a big moment that uh, sticks in the memory. So I want to go back to your, your origins. How do you get to that point of like, you know, that must be like, wow, a, a highlight and you think it's something I've come a long way. So just tell us where you're originally from and where you're speaking to us from today and kind of a little bit about the journey. Well, uh, where I was originally from was a farm in Virginia. And so um, this hillbilly figured a way out to somehow meet some of the most extraordinary people on the planet. And um, my parents moved from the city, or I'm sorry, from the farm to the city when I was about 12 years old. And so I was a fish out of water for a while and uh, had, to, had to figure out like, you know, the city life as a young kid. So what I did is I found surfing. It was my first sport. So we moved to California, which is where I am now. And um, I found surfing, fell in love with the purity of it, because if you hesitate, if you find yourself in a feared situation, um, Mother Nature has a swift and sometimes, you know, very, very harsh uh, lesson to teach you. And so, you know, drowning is a scary thing. And so from that point, um, I, there was this thing that happened for me, Adam, where I couldn't figure out how to get free during competitions, how to really compete towards, you know, my capacity. And I was basically micro choking in every contest I was in. And that's when I figured out that there's this thing called the mind. Mm -hmm. And cause I could do it physically, my technical skills were on point, but my mind would constrict and tighten up and I wasn't able to get free. And so that set me down this path. Like what is the science? What is this thing called the mind? And it just took me deep down the path to understand how did the best in the world, the psych, what is the psychology of excellence? What are those best practices? And how old were you when you sort of went down the route and obviously, you know, went to university and because I'm- Yeah, so I mean, yeah, it was a little bit more organic. It's like I was a 15 yeah. year old kid trying to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't even know there was a thing called psychology. Yeah. And then um, I think you might appreciate this is that I started, um, my parents, it was a moment, uh, a pivotal moment for me. My parents, I was 15 years old and they, they pulled me aside at the end of my senior year in high school and they said, hey, son, we tried. And um, you got a zero on your SAT. You know, you didn't, you didn't kind of take the traditional path. You're in the water a lot. And I was a, when the world was zigging, I wanted to zag. I've always been counterculture, like a, a little bit of a um, edge in, in the way that I approach things. And they said, listen, you either got to get out and get a job or you're going to need to go um, to community college. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not ready to, you know, kind of like get a job and make that yeah. happen. So I, I knew that I could do community college and keep surfing. And I think that that, that framework is materially important because there was a sense that I knew that I could get over, I could do something. And that doing something led me down the path to accidentally find psychology. And why is that important is because when we're trying to figure out our next steps, in life, whatever those might be in 2020 certainly shook up a lot for a lot of us is that there is a balance between knowing what you can do and embracing the unknown. Yeah. And it is that balance between the two that is really important. So that's how it's set up for me. And then I accidentally found, you know, fell in love with psychology at community college and just kept rolling, 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 got a graduated from a BA in psychology, a master's degree in exercise science, then back to a PhD in psychology, 
specialization in sport and performance, licensed as a psychologist, and then you know been fortunate enough to, to be part of extraordinary environments. But I want to set this up with you, is that I think what's material important as we're heading kind of on the back end of maybe the pandemic that we've associated with, we're, we're really in the middle of some uh, reimagining what it means to be human in modern life with, uh, from a racial standpoint, from an equity and inclusion standpoint, from, you know, humanity standpoint, like it's an amazing period right now. And for many people, they've been hit hard with 2020. Anxiety is a real deal. Mm. And many of us before 2020 felt anxiety, but we were just outworking it. There was a, a message that you just have to hustle hard. And sleep is for wimps and, 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 and. If you were to come inside an elite performing environment from a sport perspective, we are taking like the precision we have around recovery is ridiculous. We are so consumed. We are so interested in the right frameworks for recovery because we know that if we want to do the extraordinary, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. And if we're fatigued and tired and stale and burnt out, we are not ready. Yeah. We're not going to create something that's beautiful, certainly on the, on, the, on the sporting field, let alone have the relationships that are going to carry us you know, um, through tough times. So recovery is a big deal and anxiety is a big deal. So when you look at the rest of the world that's not an elite sport, anxiety is a big deal and recovery is a big deal. So I think there's a lot to learn from the sporting environment about how to use your mind to manage and to potentially extinguish anxiousness as well as get the right recovery systems in place to live with a sense of vibrance, you know, and, and, and aliveness. Yeah. And when it comes to the general public, what are some of the, the most obvious things that you, you come in and obviously before we're looking at the finer tweaks for the, like the one percenters, like the things you're like, well, we got to fix that first. That's like a, you know, that's where you're going to get your biggest wins. Yeah. So the anxiety, like there's a purpose for anxiety. So anxiety is, is an excessive worry about what could go wrong. Now, a little bit of thinking about what could go wrong is really important. It's going to keep us alive. It's going to keep us safe. And so we've got this ancient brain, Adam, that's trying to sort out modern dilemmas, and it's not quite primed for it. Hmm. So call that the hardware. The brain is the hardware. And I'm going to oversimplify this beautiful relationship. But the mind is the software. So the, the, the entry point to start with is the brain's going to do its thing. And when it scans the world, this is the primary dictum of the brain to scan the world and find danger. That's the primary dictum. Then if the software can't run or manage that prime dictum, the mind, if it can't run that hardware, we're going to run straight into anxiety. We're going to run straight into scanning the world and finding all the things that could go wrong. And then our brain goes, Hey, switch on heart starts to pound a little differently. Breathing changes becomes more shallow. There's a whole cascade of things that take place where people become constricted in the way that they think they're looking for the reason why they feel shitty. Mm. And so that is usually another person. So we start blaming (laughs) (laughs) or a dog sneaking up behind you. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry about that. So really what it comes down to in modern times is figuring out how are we going to organize and train and condition our mind to deal with this very powerful brain of ours. And that is what sets up the need for mental training, for psychological skills training. And in elite sport, that is where one of the leading investments is taking place right now. 
is because you ask any coach, any athlete, you know, is the mental part of the game is, is it important? And they're nodding their head because everyone's physically talented. Everyone's got the technical chops. And then the competitive advantage is those that can sit and adjust to the unfolding present moment when it's really intense mm. and it's highly emotionally charged. So that's the leading investment that's happening in most progressive sport environments is both mental skills training, which, you know, training confidence, that is, you do that like sets and reps, training, being calm sets and reps. It's, you know, there's two parts of psychology and I'll just, I'll just make it as simple as I can. There's the self-discovery process, which is who are you? And I'll tell you what, Adam, when you figure that stuff out, it's incredibly powerful because nobody can ever take it away from you. Mm. No external world, no external circumstances, no wins, no losses can take that away from you. And so then you're able to dictate your experience in life from the inside out. Those people, Adam, are powerful. They move environments. They, they make a difference when they're in rooms because they're not feeding off of the environment. They're influencing because they know how they want to feel, how they want to engage in life. And then they, it's like from the inside out is how they organize um, their energy. And so that's one. And then the second is, um, so that's the self-discovery process. And the others is the mental skills like calm and confidence and deep focus and optimism and controlling what's in your control. All of those are psychological skills that can be trained. Talking about the discovery process for you personally, I know sort of you talked about the journey and when you went down this route, but when did you feel like you really like, ah, I really, this is it. I'm like going all in. I'm going to be one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world. And, you know, just really like open it up to you. Yeah. You know, I think that, I uh, thank you for that question. It unfolds. It feels like daily almost, but there was a moment when um, I looked back and, and I was like, Ooh, there's a serious body of work here. And so I am fascinated by how the mind works. It is complicated. It's invisible. It's beautiful. It's the most powerful tool in the world. I think it's, I think it's one of the hardest sciences. And I know people say, oh, it's so soft. I mean, I'm calling BS on that. You, you <laughs> haven't done your work if you think this stuff is soft. It, it really is foundational bedrock to the human experience. And it's invisible, just like gravity is invisible. We know it exists, but somehow, because it's over there or out there, and we can see the downstream effect of it, we can see the, the thing drop, if you will. We're like, oh yeah, gravity is a thing. And oh yeah, the mind's a thing but let's not invest in it. You know, it's, it's, it is absolutely wild how people have adopted a, an aversion to psychology. And so I'm fascinated by it. I love it. So there was this moment where it was probably like towards the end of graduate school for me. And I was like, wow, like I still don't, I've done a lot of work. There's a big body of work, but I, I still don't know it. So I think that the pasture ahead is greener and bigger than where I've been. And I've been studying this damn thing for, you know, 25 plus years. So Adam, I never made a declarative statement. I want to be the, yeah. I'm, I'm not interested in, in what others are doing. I'm yeah. more interested in what I want to learn from. And I do believe, and I'm, I'm going to use the title of your pod for a minute, the alpha experience, you know, and I'm curious how you define it, but it is somebody who is so committed to understanding their capabilities or understanding how to be present in the moment that they end up exuding this influence about how others are working. And so, 
you know, we talk about alpha competitors a lot. They have a way that their level of training is so high. I don't believe people rise to the occasion. They fall to their level of training and their level of training is so strong, technical and physical, and their mind is equally fit to meet the demands of any moment. Those are the alphas. This episode is sponsored by the Talk Accelerator. Increase your influence, income, and impact. Get this completely free training masterclass on how to become a TEDx speaker. You can jump over talkxcelerator.com forward slash masterclass. Really digs into the three key secrets to landing your own TEDx talk. For those people, you know, high performers, they're maybe thinking about, you know, their performance maybe too much and they, they can't switch off their brains. Do you accomplish that if someone is so dedicated, so just wants to do that high level of performance that recovery or at least mental recovery is really tough for them because they're always thinking about the job in hand, the mission, the, you know, the goals. You're right on the money that those that are pursuing the thin herd, they're really wanting to get out there to that special frontier where the rare takes place, um, it, there, is an, there is an obsession that can come with it. There's a anxiousness of, uh, of, of thinking about it a lot. And so turning off, those that are switched on, turning off or down-regulating is a better way to think about it. It's a real yeah. skill. So one of the great ways to down-regulate is sleep. Like we got to get our sleep right. And it is the recovery mechanism for the brain. And so that's a big deal. No longer is that idea that, you know, five and a half hours of sleep is, you know, I'm tough, I'm hard, I'm gritty. It's just kind of raising your hand and everyone else looking at you nowadays going, oh, <laughs> you, know, you haven't <laughs> caught up yet. And so seven to eight hours for most people is the real deal and where our brain gets cleaned out. So that's the first way to downregulate. The second way, and I don't, I've been practicing mindfulness for 25 years. I'm not sure how people are doing it without a real practice of becoming aware of their inner experience and then more aware of the unfolding environment around them. The science around mindfulness is incredible. And um, the experience of it is equally dynamic. It's been around 2,600 years, you know, call it meditation, you know, is what I'm referring to here. But so those are two big ways, you know, a daily meditation practice. Uh, I'm competing my tail off and so are the people I work with to get sleep right. And we're organizing, fundamentally organizing our days around proper sleep and acute stress so that we can learn at the highest level. Recover, stress, recover, stress. And we're trying to do that in the most sophisticated way. But if we do stress, 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 light, recover, stress, 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 light, recover, then we get this into this game of chronic stress. Yeah. Chronic uh -huh. stress is a killer for not only disease, but all, a massive constrictor for human potential. I feel like when stress comes as well, people a lot of times feel like they need to do more to, you know, to do that more actions. And then like you say that, that recovery gets shorter and it just, yeah. 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 And we, you know, we can do amazing things for short periods of time. Like we can go a couple of days without sleep, you know, but there's a, there's a back end backlash to it. And so you want to build that base of recovery. And so mindfulness is one of them. Sleep is another one. Uh, breathing training is a third. So figuring out like how you downregulate using long exhales. Mm -hmm. And so folks that I spend time with, um, 
you know, it's a small practice of like a minimum of 10 long exhales in a row and doing it in a way where um, it's hard to exhale for that long of a time. So to make it more concrete, something like breathe in for six, hold for six, exhale for 12, hold for six. So six, six, 12, six, or seven, seven, 14, seven, or eight, eight, 16, eight, right? Uh, I'm doing stuff around um, 12, 12, 24, 12, yeah. and doing that for 10 times. Like you'll feel scared. You'll trip a wire of anxiety when you do that because you're starving your brain for oxygen. But what ends up happening is you become, you've built your capacity to deal with stress. Yeah. And then the, the rebound effect of that is a deep relaxation. So you get, you get almost like a two for you build capacity for stress when you purposely put yourself in a stressful situation like this breathing I'm talking about. And then there's a rebound that says, Oh, I'm out of that. Cool. Let's recover then. <laughs> I'm going to be listening. I'm going to try that after this. I won't do it now because <laughs> I'm going to try that after this. Episode. Yeah. 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 It was actually, um, I think my, my little boy, I've got an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. And last night, he, I'm talking about stress and anxiety. It was a Sunday night. He's got school next. He couldn't get to sleep. He was stressed. And it got to the point, and he was like, his breathing was all off. So we just, in the darkness, just doing some, just breathing together, just trying to get him breathing, just like four breaths and just in for four, out for, you know, for four. Kind box, of like box breathing. Yeah, yeah, box yeah. Breathing. yeah there just, you go. Just yeah. trying to do something real basic and similar. But it just, because, yeah, his breathing was all over. But I was just... Think of that anxiety in the sleep and i was yeah I think, god he's gonna be a mess today in terms of lack of sleep but luckily like you said it's well for short term as long as it's not long term because yeah he'd be no all problems. right but yeah i mean definitely our, anxiety <laughs> yeah we're so amazing what we're able to do you know and so but short term you know and here's the thing people that are a little short on sleep or recovery they'll be like yeah i'm okay well the brain does an amazing thing when there's a, a consistent lack of recovery, it just slowly lowers the output. And so it's a little bit like the old analogy, how do you boil a frog or how do you cook a frog? You slowly turn up the heat. Um, same thing with the brain output is that we just slowly don't have that spark or that, that fire. And so that's what our brain does to us. And then here's the amazing thing, Adam, is that after three days of good sleep, people forget what fatigue is. How about that? Yeah. Three days. I mean, our brains are radical. Creeps up on you. And sometimes you're not, you're not even that aware and you're feeling like, oh, I feel great. And then you get like one or two good nights, really good sleep. And you're just like, oh my God. Feel like yeah, a yeah, different yeah. person. And you're like, oh, that's what I should be feeling like. Yeah. Yeah. There <laughs> awesome. you go. So I want to jump into the things you did with the Red Bull Stratus mission. It's an insight into that. And also, um, how did you start to break in? Because you're coming out of university and you're just like, you've got all this enthusiasm, you've got all this knowledge and you want to help. How did you break into, say, like the Seahawks and or the first where you feel like you're getting access to these high performers and you're just like a kid in a candy store? Yeah, so I'll do the kind of chronological bit first and then yeah. take it to Rebel Strata. So first out of um, uh, my PhD program, uh, I, I had a really bad uh, surfing accident. And so I... My, I had a C3 and C5, um, C4 and C5 herniation. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I, I was dealing with some pain. And, um, but I still wanted to surf and kind of figure it out. And so I'm, I'm working my system the best I can. And I met just an absolutely incredible physician. And he happened to be connected to one of the local hockey teams in LA, uh, the pro teams. And um, he introduces me to the general manager. And the general manager goes, and this was 24. 
23, 24 years ago. And he says, oh, this is awesome. This is, oh, we've been looking for something. The sports psychology industry is only about 40 to 60 years old, somewhere in there, depending on when you count. So uh, I, got, I got kind of forced on from the GM to the coach. And so I show up to the first practice. And this, is, this story is going to make sense to you in a second here. I show up to the first practice. Um, and the coach is like, right, so I got to deal with the sports psych now, huh? And so he, he calls all the guys into the middle of the ice. He sees me walking, you know, to the side of the ring and, blow, and he says something, whatever. They kind of all look over at me and, uh, and the, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm waving like, hi guys. And then he bags them. So what that basically is, is like sprints, wind sprints at the end of practice, blue line to blue line. Mm-hmm. And these guys are getting off the ice now agitated frustrated they're irritated and no one wants to be bagged at the end of practice and so he says hey wait a minute we walk behind everybody we walk into his locker or into his office he tells all the boys to just hang out a minute now they're irritated they're sweaty they're you know agitated and then we come out about four minutes after he and i had a conversation and he goes right hey boys here's your shrink if you have any problems go go call him how do you think that's gonna go And so (laughs) I said earlier at the top of our conversation, like I grew up counterculture and no flipping chance, dude, this is going to work for me. Mm -hmm. And so now flashback, I called my mentor before, before I got this gig and I was like, yeah, I got a gig in pro sport. Like I'm pretty stoked. And he goes, Hey, call me excited after you've been fired three times because you stood up for something. (laughs) <laughs> and here I am standing practically naked in the middle of the locker room, right? And yeah. the coach is walking off and I look over him and he's got it. He's giving me his back. He's walking away. And I just said, no, 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 this isn't going to work. And so I said, Hey coach, my door's open for you. And the boys just flipped out and the room erupted and Gatorade was flowing and the, like, you know, like, and they're hooting <laughs> and hollering. And then this kind of crusty coach, stops mid midstream and i'm like oh here it goes get the bleep out of my room you know and he turns back around and he's got this shitty and grin and he says um he says good on you kid you know and right and so he's got this grin he walks oh, back into his office we and we had a great I, I say i usually ask like uh, a moment when you have to awaken your alpha and i'm like <laughs> yeah. that is so good because you can either like crumbled and shrunk or just like yeah that's yeah and so um we had about a three to four year experience it was awesome but so that was kind of my first teeth where i cut my teeth and then yeah. to answer your question I-, I left pro sport because um stick and ball sport because i i needed to get to the purity of things and it's arbitrary rules there's there's like it's just not as pure that i what i was looking for at that time and so i went back into my roots of adventure and action sport um eventually so ufc mma surfing skateboarding all of those types of uh, sports and then i found my way to red bull when they started building out their high performance program and they asked me to to help you know round out some of the psychological services there and that led to red bull stratos and I was probably about 15 years into my career at that point. And so it pulled on every capability that I had learned to that point as the most meaningful work as a project I've ever done. And, um, you know, it's extraordinary. And then that eventually led to me having a dinner with the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, um, just because we're 
a mutual friend thought we were like-minded, put us together. And then the 10 years we ended up building a business together, winning a Super Bowl in dramatic session fashion, and then losing a Super Bowl in dramatic fashion. And so, um, yeah, it's well, been a incredible on that, journey. On that note, um, obviously there's external factors, but going into so a Super Bowl, obviously winning it, the mindset around it, and then obviously not winning it. Like you said, there's, there's external factors. Do you, looking back on it now, were there any signs? Can you notice any difference? Or is it just, you know, the way there's so many variables that can happen in the game? Did you, I mean, did you have a sense looking back, oh, I can see why we won at that time or maybe something was off or not? I, you know, it's so many micro things that can happen. Yeah, it's a, it's a thoughtful question. I would say pre-game, both Super Bowls, they were back-to-back. The minds of the men inside of the locker room were on point. And so they felt great. And on both of them, we competed our tails off. The first one went positive quickly. And so we were up, you know, and so it was like, there was a fun, there was a chip, there was an, an energy inside of the system that felt just like a mid-season practice where we're having a blast. And it's one of the things that the Seahawks have done really well is to treat each game and each practice like a championship opportunity. Yeah. And so when you finally reach a championship opportunity, you're well-practiced at showing up being your very best. On the second Super Bowl, uh, it, was a, it was a battle. And back and forth, back and forth, the other team, the Patriots were up. We came back in dramatic fashion because we train optimism as a psychological skill. And optimism is at the center, Adam, of mental toughness. Mm. So if you fundamentally have the belief system that it's going to work out, you'll stay in the fight. You'll stay in that competitive state longer. Because when you look up and you see a scoreboard that we're down by 30 points, Nobody's come back from a 30-point deficit and in a Super Bowl. Like, there's an easy narrative where you can pull yourself out and save your esteem. But we train optimism so that we'll stay in it longer. So we'll stay in that vulnerable, you know, fun, engaging place longer. And so um, that took place. Last play of the game, it came in as a, as a pass play. The whole world thought it was going to be. The whole stadium including the Patriots, the other team, thought that we were going to run the ball. So they brought out their big boys to stop the run, and we made a pass. And one of their defenders made a brilliant play. The pass was good, everything was lined up, but their defender made a brilliant play. And truly, his talent in that moment beat our talent. So we learned how to, how to lose. Yeah, and what's and your job like well. after a defeat like that? Oh, it's brutal. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's brutal because, well, I come from an environment where when we're going to go do an expedition or an event that some of the skilled professionals, let's say we're going to go do um, a hike to ski a spine that has never been skied before, and you got to do some heavy things to get there, and it's, it's dangerous, that they'll pack their backpack before they go for that day's adventure so that if they don't make it back, their friends don't have to clean up their stuff. That's pure. Yeah. That's like real risk, you know? And so what ended up happening in the football world is that it was traumatic for many because it, it felt as though it was a real death. It was a death of a dream. It was a death of um, this thought that we were gonna win. It was a death of so much. 
but that grief and death are feel the same real death and this death felt the same feels the same in the brain so the the moment in the locker room was the most intense moment i've ever felt with a group of men and it was every emotion other than joy and happiness on full tilt the anger was full tilt the the sadness was full tilt the bewilderment was full tilt and i think if you fast forward it took us probably about two to three years to retract properly. It was so intense. And I would say 90% of people retracted and used that to become more whole as a human. And they did it relatively quickly. Yeah. But there was about 10% of people that got stuck in that trauma. And because um, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. You want to, like you say, it's, it's not death, it's not life or death. And it's, you want to get perspective, but then you don't want to, you know, you know, make light of someone's feelings. Obviously, you've been building it up to that point as well. So, you know, the, the hype around the Super Bowl is crazy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, their experience is their experience. And, yeah. you know, if they've had some difficult times and this was like so radical for them, you know, that, um, you know, everyone's got a different process for grief. But we can't fully be our very best when people are deeply hurting and um, not able to get past something. So we, do, we did our very best, I'll tell you that. That what you said about training optimism. I'm like, wow, that's what the general public needs. Like, <laughs> and what you said to the sort of person who says, you know, optimists, they're, they're just not realists. Some people almost feel like they have to counteract an optimist. Like they have to always focus on the things that can go wrong because this person is, you know, maybe trained optimism. What are, what are your thoughts around that? And, and how someone who's listening to this, how can they work out if they are maybe not, optimistic enough or they need to work on their optimism or train or how can they train it? So optimism and pessimism are learned. We're not born with them. So they are developed frameworks for how we think about our future. And if somebody's listening to this right now and they're like, Oh God, here we go again. Optimism. Like we're going to hold hands and we're going to pretend <laughs> everything's good. And we're going to skip through the roses or the, the, you know, the whatever. Yeah. Um, it's likely because they're still in a mode where they, they need for the right reasons to protect themselves. And so pessimism is a mechanism to protect oneself. So if you can remember, your brain is trying to scan the world and find the danger. And then if you're going to adopt a psychological framework that supports that, it's likely because you've really, you've been burned. You've felt incredible letdown or hurt or disappointment where someone or something maybe one or two or many have taken place where you're like, right, you know what? You, you got to protect yourself now. Mm. And that's, that's a fundamental framework and watch it, watch your back now. And that's a fundamental framework. And so pessimism is the fundamental belief that it's not going to work out. So take care of your own, take care of yourself, I should say. Yeah. And so when we look at the research, optimism is an inoculation for anxiety. It's an inoculation for, um, for stress and, uh, and I should say chronic stress. And then it also has performance um, attributes associated with it. Those that are optimistic. So MetLife did a classic study when they, they hired for optimistic people and highly optimistic people for, I think it was three or four, I gotta go get my research right now, three or four X outsold people that were low on optimism mm. and they, kicked ass on people that were fundamentally pessimistic. So there's a performance aspect about it. There's also a well-being aspect. 
is that when we have an optimistic framework, um, people report a sense of wellness and happiness, joy, and you know, all of yeah. and I want to say optimism, all of that you're, you're joy, of, optimism, they're you know, all kind of commingled it's together. It's very hard to be, you know, optimistic and worry about what's going to happen at the same time. Kind of, no, you cannot. Exactly. You're, you're, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> fundamentally, you cannot. And so, um, and we believe that if you're going to do something challenging and hard and difficult in life, like get to your potential or explore the frontier of something, you know, true high performance, you're going to be tested. And when you meet those tests, do you, um, do you want a framework that says, okay, I'm going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out. Stay in it. Let's stay in it. Let's stay in it. Oh shit. It's still not okay. Let's stay in it. Or do you want the framework of your, you and, or your, your team to be like, I don't know. I don't think so. Hey, maybe we should turn back. Maybe, hey, maybe now's the time. I think now's the time to turn back guys. That's a pessimistic, you know, like, so we've come to learn that optimism is at the center of mental toughness. And so, um, yeah, anyways. Yeah. I was going to say, have you ever come across a scenario where you're like, well, this person, maybe they do need to tone it down for their own personal safety in the, those sort of some of them life or death type expeditions, adventures, scenarios where they, they do need that. It's there to kind of save them, basically protect them. You're like, you know, you've got that person who's just so after it, they will literally die to reach their goal. Well, yeah. So let's yeah. talk about naive optimism. And I'm thinking straight away to the, the Stratos mission as well. That's like really pushing human boundaries as well. Yeah. So let's do that. So naive optimism is incredibly dangerous, Adam. Mm. So naive optimism is a belief it's going to work out without the capabilities for it, the internal capabilities to meet the demand. Yeah. So it's almost like a hope and a wish. And naive optimism, like if you know anyone or you've experienced in yourself abuse from a, like a relation standpoint, and a, a naive optimistic person would say, oh, she's going to change or he's going to change. The abuser's going to change, but they haven't done the work. Yeah. And so that's naive optimism. So that's very, very dangerous. In the case of exact and consequential environments, people that are naively optimistic, they don't make it. And so there is a realism that needs to be in one's optimism to, um, for it to be accurate and for it to be, have weight. And so uh, the whole game inside the game is to get to the truth. Yeah. And so if you can't get to the truth, I think when I think about the half a percenters, Adam, they're playing, a, if, if you're not committed fundamentally committed to get to the truth of what it means for you to be your very best, you're not playing the same game as them. And so the game that they're playing is like fundamentally to get to the truth and have the most radical tool set, technically, physically, and mentally, because they know that what they're going to do requires other people to help them and to be part of like, nobody does the extraordinary alone. So we need great relationships and we need great skills to manage, um, life's roughest storms yeah when uh, when you were talking about that as well and i know you said you work with ufc fighters it reminds me i interviewed uh charlie the spaniard brenneman and he a quote he said was earn the right to trust your gut in terms of like that optimism and i love that instead of just you know trust your gut because then it could be a, you know you might not have the expertise in that area and that's not good advice <laughs> that's exactly right you got to earn the right yeah and that's what training and that's what so people that are really wanting to commit to the extraordinary way of living, whether it's performative or it's deep love and purpose and meaning, um, 
they are required to put themselves in intimate and vulnerable situations. Whether again, whether it's love and purpose and meaning, or it's and or it's on the thin herd, thin edge of um, human performance, whatever that frontier is, vulnerability is required. And so when you feel vulnerable, we like to call it quote unquote pressure, right? It's vulnerability. <laughs> I need to think or move faster than I think I can move or think. So that's what pressure is. It's vulnerability. I'm going to be exposed here. And if it's an exact consequential environment, it's sometimes life and death. Sometimes it's ego. Um, or if it's in a living room where there's great intimacy, it's like, that sense of vulnerability is overwhelming for many people as well. So that's why so many relationships, I think, struggle is because getting to that vulnerable state is really, really difficult for many. I'm going to start to wrap this up now because I feel like we could just talk for hours and I want to be respectful of your time. So we're going into the alpha round. and I like to start that off with, is there a particular quote? And we kind of almost been talking quotes there, but uh, that really sums up your approach to life, just an all-time favorite, the sort of thing you might have up in your office wall. And I know you've been in, obviously, locker rooms where they've likely got quotes up there. Is there anything that really resonates with you? I, you know, it, it feels like I can find inspiration from just about any of the ones that are going to make any wall, really. But the one that I live true to is that every day is an opportunity to create a living masterpiece. And the reason I live true to that is because it is my philosophy of life, is that every day it's an opportunity to create, actually, if I was to sharpen it, I'd say co-create a living masterpiece. And so that's how I wake up in the morning, I think about it. I, um, I fundamentally align my life to day in and day out pursue um, the creation of a living masterpiece. So that one gets me. Yeah, I love it. And I like the little, like you said, that little addition of co-create, because obviously for it to be a masterpiece, you've got your loved ones and colleagues and that all need to be yeah. involved in that. That's awesome. And for you, is there a particularly impactful book for you over your life? Um, first, like a first framework is that I'm more interested in the books that hold up for the ages, the greats, you know, if you will. And so I'm much more interested in those books than kind of the modern pop science books. But the one that I've handed out most, and I think that was most influential for me, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. And yeah, there's nothing groundbreaking about me saying that. Wow. Uh, I know that's, um, yeah, that's my top recommended one. It's because it's, yeah, it's like 160 pages, isn't it? It's so impactful. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And I'd say the first half of the book is the necessary read. The second half is more for psychologists, but that first half of the book is game changing. Wow. Yeah. Very powerful. Um, and having gone through the bulk of your, the interview and obviously the, the huge amount of people you've got to pull from, from experiences and interv uh, interviews as well from your own podcast, who would you recommend for the Awaken Your Alpha show? There's a, there's a few that come instantly to mind. Uh, Alex Anold, one of the greats who scaled 3000 foot granite wall without ropes and tethers, you know, like, so Alex was pretty extraordinary. Um, the CEO of AT&T, John Donovan, was extraordinary and how he talked about how he organizes his inner life yeah. to be able to manage somewhere north of 360,000 humans. I mean, wow. um, outrageous. The CEO of uh, Microsoft, Satya Nadella, was quite extraordinary. Um, just recently, Tatiana Bartoletta. No, it's not um, Tiana Bartoletta, just an extraordinary Olympian and how she thinks about you know, how she organizes her inner life and trains her mind. 
And so those are just a handful of ones yeah. that I, I like. I nod yeah. my head. To. And with um, Alex and his, his climbing, I've seen the documentary and it, it's, it took my anxiety to watch that. It is like, whew, to actually do it. Did you interview or did you do any work with him? Because I mean, talk about life or death. Those are the projects that I've spent a lot of time with. But with Alex, we never crossed paths until uh, the Finding Mastery podcast. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it, it was awesome. Yeah, I mean, God, what would you say to someone obviously who they've earned the right to, you know, maybe potentially try something as extreme as that going into something like that? I mean, where, where would you start? Like some, I think he sums it up best, which is he does not consider what he does to be risky, mm. but it is consequential. And so he is so highly skilled. He's not a madman, you know, like he, he is so highly skilled that he knows that he has the capabilities to be able to meet that challenge, to scale that, that literally that 3000 foot. Yeah. And when you watch the documentary, you realize oh, yeah. Yeah, how planned out it is. Yeah. Like say, if you just see the highlights or the, you know, the headline, you think, oh, he's just gonna, oh, I'll climb that. But it's like, wow, <laughs> no, the prep behind it and like the timing and the, you know, making sure you're ready and yeah, you can't have a mistake basically. <laughs> no, there's no mistakes afforded. And then, but what we miss though is, all of his body of work that has led him to have the knowing and the skills to meet this like frontier. Um, and so I think that that, I think that's really telling. And if someone wants to continue the conversation, what's the best way they can connect with you, follow up and find out more about all and everything you do. Thank you for including me in your community and, and, and having a fun spark conversation here. And I think the, the best way is I, I love social. Those are cool. You know, so it's all of the social handles are at Michael Gervais, G-E-R-V-A-I-S. And then findingmastery.net is the website that has uh, the online course, you know, that, that literally where we pull back the course, pull back the curtain, sorry, and, and show you exactly how we help the most extraordinary people train their mind and organize their inner life. So we're making available the first time for folks. So that's findingmastery.net. You can find the course there. You can also find the podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast, tracking down the finest alpha minds on the planet for you. This episode is sponsored by the Talk Accelerator. Increase your influence, income, and impact. If you've ever thought or dreamed or wondered what it would be like to do a TEDx talk, you can do that. So head over to talkxcelerator.com forward slash masterclass and you can get this completely free training masterclass on how to become a TEDx speaker and thought leader without desperately chasing and wasting your time on the wrong opportunities. It really digs into the three key secrets to landing your own TEDx talk. All right, have a great week. Amplify your message and amplify your mission. Do the little guy a favor, subscribe and review. It'll help get him off my back.